This week's Ed Surge podcast is brought to you by Amazon Future Engineer. Amazon Future Engineer is a comprehensive childhood-to-career program aimed at improving access to computer science education for children and young adults from underserved and underrepresented communities. Visit AmazonFutureEngineer.com to learn more. That's AmazonFutureEngineer.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I am Jeff Young. I'm the managing editor here at Ed Surge. We are a nonprofit newsroom covering change in education. Speaking of change, our guest this week says big changes are coming to higher education. And those changes will be bigger and more disruptive than many college leaders even realize. That is the view of Arthur Levine. And he lays it out in a new book called The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, present, and uncertain future. To understand this argument, it it helps to be reminded of who Arthur Levine is. So he's been a player in shaping education for decades. Among some of the jobs he has held, he's been president of a college, Bradford College. He's also been president of Teachers College at Columbia University. And most recently, he was president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, which recently changed its name to the Institute for Citizens and Scholars. So this book that he co-wrote with Scott Van Pelt of UPenn looks back on the long sweep of Levine's experience and builds on the trends he's seen firsthand to make a case for why people should think differently about what might be coming next. So I was able to sit down with Levine in person. Um, That was a rare treat in this time of pandemic. I don't want to spoil too much about what's coming, but um, some themes that did come up are equity and access to higher ed, and how he thinks about new online players like Coursera and edX. Just a reminder of what those are. Coursera and edX, these are platforms that work with major colleges and universities to offer courses and degree programs. And both have had some recent news that we're going to talk about. So let's roll this. Here is my conversation with Arthur Levine. So you have a a new book coming out here. And um, one of the things that struck me is that it seems to me like you're talking about, you know, this great upheaval and disruption. Obviously, like a lot of people are talking, you know, some people say, oh, so universities need to innovate and all this. But you seem to want to change the narrative around, you know, how much and what kind of innovation is needed or, or, or how to talk about it. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about like why it sounds like if I understand you right, it's almost like you think we're talking about it wrong as a culture or something or in higher ed, especially. I do think we're talking about what's coming wrongly. And the problem is that it tends to be largely opinion with two camps at the extremes. One camp says, you know, higher education is going to be able to adapt its way through all of the demographic, economic, technological, and global changes that are coming. And the other camp says, no, it's going to disrupt higher education, destroy the existing model. And it isn't good enough to just guess, to choose one camp over the other without evidence. And what I sought to do in this book was provide the evidence. Let's look at this historically by looking backward because we've gone through a transformation once before. Second, let's look at it going forward by looking at what's going to come out of the technological, economic, and demographic changes that are facing us. 
Finally, let's look at it sideways. Higher education's been slow to change, but other industries have been forced to change much more quickly. Business, for examples of film, music, and newspapers were forced to change because in the for-profit sector, we change by um, replacement. In the not-for-profit sector, we change by repair. And you can see what's coming to some degree by looking sideways. So with the benefits of that perspective, right, your long long participation and your reading up on history in this space, but also, like you say, looking to other industries. But so what does that get us? What do you think is the takeaway from having that perspective as you look at, at the situation? I think taking the three perspectives showed a great deal. By looking backward, we're really able to outline the steps by which the transformation occurring now will occur. And by looking forward, we're able to see what effect will the forces facing us, or at least so far, of demography, economics, and um, technology have in terms of does it mean that we're going to adapt or does it mean that we're going to be disrupted? And in that case, so far, it's meant that we could adapt. Then when we look at other industries, what it says is digital technology disrupted them and it raises the prospect that the same thing could happen in higher education. I think at one point you make a prediction that of kind of what might come for higher education. And it's, it's one you say you're not, you're not advocating for. In fact, you don't, you're worried about it. So what is, that, what is that vision in a nutshell? There are going to be some major changes occurring in higher education. And one that became real clear during the pandemic was the dramatic expansion of um, what we'd call peripheral organizations, post-secondary organizations like Coursera. Coursera's enrollments during the pandemic increased by 25 million. That's more than the entire size of higher education. So we saw was a lot of the online programs outside of traditional universities boomed. And traditional programs lost enrollment for the most part. So what we're seeing is a whole bunch of new producers of content and deliverers of content available to students. We're seeing students have a greater capacity than ever before to make use of those because of the near universality of the internet and digital devices. And finally, we're seeing a consumer-oriented group of students that are likely to demand the same thing from their colleges that they're finding in the um, new sector or the emerging sector of post-secondary education, the new providers, which is lower cost, anytime, any place, online, unbundling, and different kinds of credentials. And the impact that's likely to have is that every institution of higher education will be transformed in the years to come. There are three likely ways in which that could occur. One is the pandemic in some ways was an accelerator. And the the support for higher education that's come from Washington slowed down the acceleration. But there are a lot of institutions right at the edge. And some number are going to close, 
Some number are going to merge, but they won't be here in the years to come. These changes will force them over the edge. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but in the near future. The second thing that's going to happen is there are going to be some institutions that are going to be able to adapt. And those institutions, for the most part, are institutions that have something unique to offer. And the two best examples are research universities, because we still need to train researchers. They're still going to be here. We still need to do research. So those universities will continue to exist. Another one is residential colleges. Although only 18% of all college students are full-time residential and 18 to 22, the reality is there's still going to be a whole bunch of people who want the residential college experience, and those will continue. In both sectors, though, the numbers will decline. And finally, those institutions that aren't special, that aren't unique in any way, will be forced to face the Courseras of the world. Cheaper, faster, same programs. And increasingly, what we're finding is they have taken on the students, the same students, as regional universities, community colleges. And the consequence will be that if they're not different, why would people want to go there for only showing up to take courses, not using any of the other facilities? Um, it's going to create real difficulty for mainstream higher education that doesn't fit into the earlier categories, and that will be disrupted. You know, there's a really interesting point you made that I hadn't seen anybody else really say. There's a lot of talk about equity these days, and but you say the term educational equity needs to be redefined in this period because of these disruptions we're talking about. But what... Could you talk a little bit about that? With our current definition of equity is that we offer all students the same resources. And that makes sense in an industrial world in which the measure of achievement and progress in higher education is time. Common time, common process. But in a global digital information economy, We're moving toward a time in which, or moving toward an era, in which time will diminish in importance. And what we'll see is a growing focus on outcomes. That's the nature of such a society. And once that happens, equity takes on an entirely different meaning. Equity becomes giving all students, all people, an opportunity to achieve the same outcomes that won't involve equal resources, What it involves is the resources those students need in order to reach the end goal. Right. So it's more, it sounds like you, I think you even mentioned that in some K-12 kind of lawsuits around equity, this is already being discussed, but it'll move to more higher ed as well, where the the question is not whatever it takes to get a student there, that to get to that point, that's the, that's the thing that's the, the thing that needs to be focused on is instead of just getting to a place that will school you. What we're moving beyond is experience, time and process, to outcomes. We don't, it won't work for all students to have the same experience. They have very different needs. We want all students to have is the same opportunity, not a guarantee, but the same opportunity to achieve the outcomes we set 
for education. After the break, how the growth of online programs could change the role of reputation and prestige in higher ed. Stay with us. Teachers, educators, and parents. Are you looking for new ways to show your students how learning in school connects with jobs in the real world? Join a free Amazon Future Engineer Fulfillment Center tour and spark your students' interest in STEM careers today. During this one-hour virtual tour, students will uncover the magic behind the scenes at Amazon. From Amazon's online store to your doorstep, discover how computer science, state-of-the-art engineering, and incredible people power each step of the order delivery process. Plus, you'll even get to meet a few of the amazing engineers behind the technology. Sign up today and let your students see where a career in tech can take them. You can register now at amazonfutureengineer.com slash fctours and discover a tour of possibilities. That's amazonfutureengineer.com slash fctours. Now back to the episode. So the week we recorded this episode, Coursera had just made some news and I had written about it for EdSurge. The company announced a shift in its strategy, essentially, saying that it was now going to try to convince more of its college partners to offer full online degree programs instead of just individual courses on the platform. And I asked Levine what he thought of this development. Universities are platforms for face-to-face learning. And now Coursera is about to become a platform for universities. Hmm. It's fascinating. Begin to ask, what's the foreground and what's the background? In the past, Coursera has always been the background. When it begins to become a platform for universities and degree programs, does it become the foreground? I mean, those are pretty big-name universities that think highly of themselves. But is there a risk that some during the line students are like, I don't know where I'm studying, Coursera? Absolutely. I mean, Coursera has a set of universities, uh, businesses, and not-for-profits that are among the most elite in the world. Why wouldn't I, for example, want a certificate from Google for an IT rather than taking the same program at a community college or the local or regional university, which will cost more and take longer and doesn't have the prestige of Google certification. Hmm. The world we're heading into is provider agnostic. It doesn't matter if I learned what I learned at Harvard. It doesn't matter if I learned what I learned at Coursera. It doesn't matter if I learned it on Wikipedia. It doesn't matter if I dreamed it last night. What we're talking about is, have you achieved the outcome? Don't care how you've done it. So the question's going to be people's facility with outcomes. What's going to matter is the evaluation of people who've worked with those people. What's going, so I think we're talking about a world in which evaluation and micro-credentials and content and knowledge are going to be far more important than where you got them. One thing it seems like is a potential outcome if, you know, these changes you talked about with higher ed come true or comes true in a bigger way is general ed being diminished and and people moving away from this idea that there's a general curriculum that's prized that that a lot of students have is and what do you think um you know do do you see that 
that move away from general ed and why does what is what is the outcome of that do you think or what is the the it sounds like you, you're concerned about that so what is the danger of of having a move away from that the real danger we're facing is that online digital education means that i can get what i want and you can get what you want out of education and I've always imagined that at some point programs like all things will considered will become one thing considered, and that'll be whatever you want or whatever I want. It's interesting because on one hand, that is probably literally the sales pitch, right? It's like everybody gets what they want. That's it. That's exactly the sales pitch. But the difficulty is the loss of commonality. We can already see in the deep divisions in our society. What do we do to provide a common learning experience for all people? to establish the commonalities we all share. There's no reason why in a time in which degrees diminish in importance and micro-credentials increase in value that people will need to take that common learning. So what it means is universities have to be real clear about what they do in terms of degree programs and such. However, the real locus for those, that activity has got to be the schools. That's the last common experience all students will have. And we need to ensure the commonality of learning <clears throat> in that environment. Yeah. And one of the things that, that struck me, kind of circling a little bit back to the beginning, is you talk a little bit in the book about the, the question, what is the purpose of higher education? And it's it seems like something people in a higher education especially should know the answer to, but it almost seems like you're suggesting that not just higher ed, but even in the public at large, there's a that that there's maybe a, there's a, a loss that people in the in the industry of higher ed have lost their way a little bit. For higher education to be successful, it needs to have one foot in the library or the whole of human heritage, and one foot in the street. What's happening in the world today? When societies change quickly, dramatically, profoundly. Higher education loses traction with the street. And it's necessary to restore that traction. There's never been a time in history in which higher education hasn't offered both the street and the library. And even if you look back at the medieval universities, what you find is people went there and they studied the trivium and the quadrivium in order to get jobs. People came to Harvard and they studied divinity and they studied Hebrew, Aramaic. They studied Latin, Greek. This is a colony we're talking about. It turns out none of the tribes that lived here spoke Latin, Greek, or Aramaic. Why did they do that? And the answer was they were preparing people for the ministry. And those are the languages that people needed to join the ministry. Higher education has always been vocational in the largest sense of the word. And that means having a foot squarely in the street. And we need to restore that. I, I think your point about the, the speed being, a, it's not necessarily that just that, oh, academics are always up in their own heads and they're not really paying attention. It's just that attitude is there, but also that when things do change fast, the systems are not even designed to be changing fast in higher ed, it sounds like. We're living in a Rip Van Winkle world. Rip Van Winkle, the story of a guy who went to sleep for 20 years 
wakes up, thinks he's only slept one night, walks into his village, and none of it's recognizable. None of it. Not the people, not the buildings, not the stores. And he really believes he's lost touch with reality. In some respects, we're living in that world today, which is everything appears to be changing. And we don't have much control over how it's changing. And one of the consequences is that there are people who are getting left behind. And a new set of skills required to exist in this world, to thrive in this world. And this world is absolutely bewildering um, just because it's so uncertain, so confusing, so changeable. It, uh, it's a fascinating perspective. Is there anything else you want to add that I haven't asked you about, about you know, what you're sharing in this, in this new book? Um, There's one thing I might add which is that one of the dangers of inequality is setting up two systems of higher education. One is residential, four-year, and gives out degrees. The other one is online, quicker, and gives out certificates at much lower cost. The big fear is that The former is reserved for people with wealth, and the latter becomes the province of only those without resources. You feel like that's not equal outcomes? In 1947, President Truman formed a commission, and what that commission said was that we needed much greater access to higher education than we had at that point. We also needed one other thing, and that was choice. So the student who has the abilities, the inclinations, can go to the school that best fits his or her needs. And as we've watched higher education develop over the years and policy develop, we focused only on the first part, which is access. And choice got lost somewhere. We need to restore choice. Thanks so much for for sharing. My pleasure. It was really good to talk to you. This has been the Ed Search Podcast. We are here every Tuesday. Please subscribe to the Ed Search Podcast wherever you listen and sign up for our weekly Ed Search Podcast newsletter to get updates and bonus information about every episode. And as the academic year gets going, we have lots of interesting episodes coming. You're not going to want to miss them. Like next week, we're going to have an update on that NFT we're selling um, to learn more about the blockchain and how it could play a role in education. I think we might have found a buyer. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletters at the top right to sign up. That's edsurge.com, upper right, newsletters. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung. I'd love to hear from you. Music this episode is by Kat Ingle, and we found her on the Free Music Archive. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Talk to you then.